Section 2 of Inquiring Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhys Trevenin. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness, Volume 2, by William Goodwin. Chapter 2. Of Education. The Education of a Prince. Nature of Monarchy Delineated. School of Adversity. Tendency of superfluity to inspire effeminacy, to deprive us of the benefit of experience, illustrated in the case of princes. Manner in which they are addressed. Inefficacy of the instruction bestowed upon them. First, then, of Monarchy and we will first suppose the succession to the monarchy to be hereditary. In this case we have the additional advantage of considering this distinguished mortal who is thus set over the heads of the rest of his species from the period of his birth. The abstract idea of a king is of an extremely momentous and extraordinary nature, and though the idea has, by the accident of education, been rendered familiar to us from our infancy, yet perhaps the majority of readers can recollect the period when it struck them with astonishment and confounded their powers of apprehension. It being sufficiently evident that some species of government was necessary, and that individuals must concede a part of that sacred and important privilege, by which each man is constituted judge of his own words and actions, for the sake of general good, it was next requisite to consider what expedients might be substituted in the room of this original claim. One of these expedients has been monarchy. It was the interest of each individual that his individuality should be invaded as rarely as possible, that no invasion should be permitted to flow from the wanton caprice, from sinister and disingenuous views, or from the instigation of anger, partiality and passion, and that this bank, severely levied upon the peculium of each member of the society, should be administered with frugality and discretion. It was therefore, without doubt, a very bold adventure to commit this precious deposit to the custody of a single man. If we contemplate the human powers, whether of body or mind, we shall find them much better suited to the superintendence of our private concerns and to the administering of occasional assistance to others than to the accepting the formal trust of superintending the affairs and watching for the happiness of millions. If we recollect the physical and moral equality of mankind, it will appear a very violent usurpation upon this principle, to place one individual at so vast an interval from the rest of his species. Let us then consider how such persons are usually educated, or may be expected to be educated, and how well they are prepared for this illustrious office. It is a common opinion that adversity is the school in which all extraordinary virtue must be formed. Henry IV of France and Elizabeth of England experienced a long series of calamities before they were elevated to a throne. Alfred, of whom the obscure chronicles of a barbarous age record such superior virtues, passed through the vicissitudes of a vagabond and a fugitive. Even the mixed and, upon the whole, the vicious yet accomplished characters of Frederick and Alexander, who were not formed, 
without the interference of injustice and persecution. This hypothesis, however, seems to have been pushed too far. It is no more reasonable to suppose that virtue cannot be matured without injustice than to believe, which has been another prevailing opinion, that human happiness cannot be secured without imposture and deceit. Both these errors have a common source, a distrust in the omnipotence of truth. If their advocates had reflected more deeply upon the nature of the human mind, they would have perceived that all our voluntary actions are judgments of the understanding, and that actions of the most judicious and useful nature must infallibly flow from a real and genuine conviction of truth. But, though the exaggerated opinion here stated of the usefulness of adversity be erroneous, it is, like many other of our errors, allied to important truth. If adversity be not necessary, it must be allowed that prosperity is pernicious. Not a genuine and philosophical prosperity, which requires no more than sound health with a sound intellect, the capacity of procuring for ourselves by a moderate and well-regulated industry, the means of subsistence, virtue and wisdom. But prosperity as it is usually understood, that is, a competence, provided for us by the caprice of human institution, inviting our bodies to indolence and our minds to lethargy, and still more prosperity, as it is understood in the case of noblemen and princes, that is, a superfluity of wealth, which deprives us of all intercourse with our fellow men upon equal terms, and makes us prisoners of state, gratified indeed with baubles and splendour, but shut out from the real benefits of society and the perception of truth. If truth be so intrinsically powerful as to make adversity unnecessary to excite our attention to it, it is nevertheless certain that luxury and wealth have the most fatal effects in distorting it. If it require no foreign aid to assist its energies, we ought, however, to be upon our guard against principles and situations, the tendency of which may be perpetually to counteract it. Nor is this all. One of the most essential ingredients of virtue is fortitude. It was the plan of many of the Gracian philosophers, and most of all of Diogenes, to show to mankind how very limited is the supply that our necessities require, and how little dependent our real welfare and prosperity are upon the caprice of others. Among innumerable incidents upon record that illustrate this principle, a single one may suffice to suggest to our minds its general spirit. Diogenes had a slave whose name was Menace, and Menace thought proper upon some occasion to elope. Ha! said the philosopher. Can Menace live without Diogenes, and cannot Diogenes live without Menace? There can be no lesson more important than that which is here conveyed. The man that does not know himself not to be at the mercy of other men, that does not feel that he is invulnerable to all the vicissitudes of fortune, is incapable of a constant and inflexible virtue. He, to whom the rest of his species can reasonably look up with confidence, must be firm, because his mind is filled with the excellence of the object he pursues, and cheerful, because he knows that it is out of the power of events to injure him. If any one should choose to imagine that this idea of virtue is strained too high, yet all must allow that no man can be entitled to our confidence, 
who trembles at every wind, who can endure no adversity, and whose very existence is linked to the artificial character he sustains. Nothing can more reasonably excite our contempt than a man who, if he were once reduced to the genuine and simple condition of man, would be driven to despair, and find himself incapable of consulting and providing for his own subsistence. Fortitude is a habit of mind that grows out of a sense of our independence. If there be a man who dares not even trust his own imagination with the fancied change of his circumstances, he must necessarily be effeminate, irresolute, and temporizing. He that loves sensuality or ostentation better than virtue may be entitled to our pity, but a madman only would entrust to his disposal anything that was dear to him. Again, the only means by which truth can be communicated to the human mind is through the inlet of the senses. It is perhaps impossible that a man shut up in a cabinet can ever be wise. If we would acquire knowledge, we must open our eyes and contemplate the universe. Till we are acquainted with the meaning of terms and the nature of the objects around us, we cannot understand the propositions that may be formed concerning them. Till we are acquainted with the nature of the objects around us, we cannot compare them with the principles we have formed and understand the modes of employing them. There are other ways of attaining wisdom and ability beside the school of adversity, but there is no way of attaining them but through the medium of experience. That is, experience brings in the materials with which the intellect works, for it must be granted that a man of limited experience will often be more capable than he who has gone through the greatest variety of scenes, or rather perhaps that one man may collect more experience in a sphere of a few miles square than another who has sailed round the world. To conceive truly the value of experience, we must recollect the numerous improvements the human mind has received, and how far an enlightened European differs from a solitary savage. However multifarious are these improvements, there are but two ways in which they can be appropriated by any individual. Either at second hand by books and conversation, or at first hand by our own observations of men and things. The improvement we receive in the first of these modes is unlimited, but it will not do alone. We cannot understand books till we have seen the subjects of which they treat. He that knows the mind of man must have observed it for himself. He that knows it most intimately must have observed it in the greatest variety of situations. He must have seen it without disguise, when no exterior situation puts a curb upon its passions and induces the individual to exhibit a studied, not a spontaneous character. He must have seen men in their unguarded moments, when the eagerness of temporary resentment tips their tongue with fire, when they are animated and dilated by hope, when they are tortured and wrung with despair, when the sore pours out its innermost self into the bosom of an equal and a friend. Lastly, he must himself have been an actor in the scene, have had his own passions brought into play, have known the anxiety of expectation and the transport of success, or he will feel and understand about as much of what he sees.
as mankind in general would of the transaction of the vitrified inhabitants of the planet Mercury, or the salamanders that live in the sun. Such is the education of the true philosopher, the genuine politician, the friend and benefactor of humankind. What is the education of a prince? Its first quality is extreme tenderness. The winds of heaven are not permitted to blow upon him. He is dressed and undressed by his lackeys and valets. His wants are carefully anticipated, his desires, without any effort of his, profusely supplied. His health is of too much importance to the community to permit him to exert any considerable effort either of body or mind. He must not hear the voice of reprimand or blame. In all things, it is first of all to be remembered that he is a prince, that is, some rare and precious creature, but not of humankind. As he is to heir to a throne, it is never forgotten by those about him that considerable importance is to be annexed to his favour or his displeasure. Accordingly, they never express themselves in his presence frankly and naturally, either respecting him or themselves. They are supporting a part. They play under a mask. Their own fortune and emolument is always uppermost in their minds, at the same time that they are anxious to appear generous, disinterested and sincere. All his caprices are to be complied with. All his gratifications are to be studied. They find him a depraved and sordid mortal. They judge of his appetites and capacities by their own, and the gratifications they recommend serve to sink him deeper in folly and vice. What is the result of such an education? Having never experienced contradiction, the young prince is arrogant and presumptuous. Having always been accustomed to the slaves of necessity or the slaves of choice, he does not understand even the meaning of the word freedom. His temper is insolent and impatient of parley and expostulation. Knowing nothing, he believes himself sovereignly informed and runs headlong into danger, not from firmness and courage, but from the most egregious wilfulness and vanity. Like Pyro among the ancient philosophers, if his attendants were at a distance and he trusted himself alone in the open air, he would perhaps be run over by the next coach or fall down on the first precipice. His violence and presumption are strikingly contrasted with the extreme timidity of his disposition. The first opposition terrifies him. The first difficulty, seen and understood, appears insuperable. He trembles at a shadow, and at the very semblance of adversity is dissolved into tears. It has accordingly been observed that princes are commonly superstitious beyond the rate of ordinary mortals. Above all, simple unqualified truth is a stranger to his ear. It either never approaches, or, if so unexpected a guest should once appear, it meets with so cold a reception as to afford little encouragement to a second visit. The longer he has been accustomed to falsehood and flattery, the more grating will it sound. The longer he has been accustomed to falsehood and flattery, the more terrible will the task appear to him, to change his tastes and to discard his favourites. He will either place a blind confidence in all men, or, having detected the insincerity of those who are most agreeable to him, 
who conclude that all men are navish and designing. As a consequence of this last opinion, he will become indifferent to mankind, and callous to their sufferings, and will believe that even the virtuous are knaves under a craftier mask. Such is the education of an individual who he is destined to superintend the affairs and watch for the happiness of millions. In this picture are contained the features which most obviously constitute the education of a prince into the conduct of which no person of energy and virtue has by accident been introduced. In real life, it will be variously modified, but the majority of the features, unless in rare instances, will remain the same. In no case can the education of a friend and benefactor of humankind, as sketched in a preceding page, by any speculative contrivance be communicated. Nor is there any difficulty in accounting for the universal miscarriage. The wisest perceptor, thus circumstance must labour under insuperable disadvantages. No situation can be so artificial as that of a prince, so difficult to be understood by him who occupies it, so irresistibly propelling the mind to mistake. The first ideas it suggests are of a tranquilizing and soporific nature. It fills him with the opinion of his secretly possessing some inherent advantage over the rest of his species, by which he is informed to command and they to obey. If you assure him of the contrary, you can expect only an imperfect and temporary credit, for facts when, as in this case, they are continually deposing against you, speak a language more emphatic and intelligible than words. If it were not as he supposes, why should everyone that approaches be eager to serve him? The sordid and selfish motives by which they are really actuated, he is very late in detecting. It may even be doubted whether the individual, who was never led to put professions of others on the test by his real wants, has, in any instance, being completely aware of the little credit that is usually due to them. A prince finds himself courted and adored long before he can have acquired a merit entitling him to such distinctions. By what arguments can you persuade him laboriously to pursue what appears so completely superfluous? How can you induce him to be dissatisfied with his present acquisitions, while every other person assures him that his accomplishments are admirable and his mind a mirror of sagacity. How will you persuade him, who finds all his wishes anticipated, to engage in any arduous undertaking or propose any distant object for his ambition? But even should you succeed in this, his pursuits may be expected to be either mischievous or useless. His understanding is distorted, and the basis of all morality, the recollection that other men are beings of the same order with himself, is extirpated. It would be unreasonable to expect from him anything generous and humane. Unfortunate as he is, his situation is continually propelling him to vice, and destroying the germs of integrity and virtue before they are unfolded. If sensibility begins to discover itself, it is immediately poisoned by the blighting winds of flattery. Amusement and sensuality call with an imperious voice, and will not allow him time to feel. Artificial as is the character he feels, even should he aspire to fame, it will be by artificial methods of false refinement, 
or the barbarous inventions of usurpation and conquest, not by the plain and unornamented road of benevolence. Some idea of the methods usually pursued, and the effects produced in the education of a prince, may be collected from a late publication of Madame de Genlis, in which she gives an account of her own proceedings in relation to the children of the Duke of Orleans. She thus describes the features of their disposition and habits, at the time they were committed to her care. The Duke de Valois, the eldest, is frequently coarse in his manners and ignoble in his expressions. He finds great humour in calling mean and common objects by their vulgar appellations. All this seasoned with the proverbial propensity of Sancho, and set off with a loud forced laugh. His prate is eternal, nor does he suspect that it must be an exquisite gratification to any one to be entertained with it, and he frequently heightens the jest by a falsehood uttered in the gravest manner imaginable. Neither he nor his brother has the least regard for anybody but themselves. They are selfish and grasping, considering everything that is done for them as their due, and imagining that they are in no respect obliged to consult the happiness of others. The slightest reproof is beyond measure shocking to them, and the indignation they conceive at it immediately vents itself in sullenness or tears. They are in an uncommon degree effeminate, afraid of the wind or the cold, unable to run or leap, or even so much as to walk at a round pace or for more than half an hour at a time. The Duke de Valois has an extreme terror of dogs to such a degree as to turn pale and shriek at the sight of one. When the children of the Duke of Orleans were committed to my care, they had been accustomed in winter to wear under waistcoats, two pairs of stockings, gloves, muffs, etc. The eldest, who was eight of age, never came downstairs without being supported by the arm of one or two persons. The domestics were obliged to render them the meanest services and, for a cold or any slight indisposition, sat up with them for nights together. Madame de Genlis, a woman of uncommon talents, though herself infected with a considerable number of errors, corrected these defects in the young princes. But few princes have the good fortune to be educated by a person of so much independence and firmness as Madame de Genlis, and we may safely take our standard for the average calculation, rather from her predecessors than herself. Even were it otherwise, we have already seen what it is that a preceptor can do in the education of a prince. Nor should it be forgotten that the children under her care were not of the class of princes who seem destined to a throne. End of chapter 2 Recording by Rhys Trevenin.